0: Why is it hard to pray? Why is it hard to pray? I bet we can come up with at least 50, if not 500 answers of why it's hard to pray. Maybe it's because we're tired. Maybe it's because we're distracted. Maybe it's because we're bored. Why is it hard to pray? I bet you might not have considered this reason it's hard to pray because the heart of prayer runs contrary to the heart of people. The heart of prayer runs contrary to the heart of people. You see, prayer cuts against the natural grain and grooves of our heart. Prayer swims against the stream and not swims with the stream. This is what I mean. For every one of us, growth looks like an increase in independence. From the time you were a kid, even a baby, this is how it works. The goal was to get you independent. The goal was to get you to walk so that you wouldn't have to be carried. The goal was to get you to feed yourself so that you wouldn't have to be fed. The goal was to get you to entertain and soothe yourself, not to need someone else to do that for you. The goal was to get you to teach yourself, not for mom and dad to continue to do your homework. The goal was to get you to provide for yourself so others don't have to provide for you and so that you can start to provide for others. All of your life, so much of growth is an increase in independence. And this is good. We should take responsibility for ourselves we are, because we are accountable for ourselves. But here's the thing, as you grow in independence, your sinful heart begins to believe the lie that you are self-sufficient. Now, if you are convinced that you are independent and self-sufficient, prayer will be hard. It will go against the grain and grooves of your heart. Because growth in prayer looks like an increase in dependence, not independence. You lean on God more, not less. And this swims against the current of how we function, of what we've been conditioned to value, of what we've been conditioned to want and desire. Prayer is hard. And I want to give you permission to admit that. But here's the thing, though. You can learn to pray You can learn to pray. This month of July, we are focusing on Jesus' teaching and example of prayer from the Gospel of Luke. And today we'll focus mainly on Luke's account of what many call the Lord's Prayer. I'll argue this from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Every child of God can learn how to depend on their father in prayer by following the pattern of the son. Christian brother and sister, If you struggle to pray, there is hope. You can learn. Luke 11, 1-4. Follow along with me as I read. After I'm reading, I'll say this is God's word. If you agree, would you say with me, thanks be to God. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Prayer is hard. It's natural for us to be independent, but the heart of prayer is dependence. Still, you can learn to pray, and you can learn by following the pattern of the Son. Jesus teaches us to depend on God in prayer for at least five different needs here in Luke 11, 1-4. Need number one, we depend for teaching. Now, most of us uh, know Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often tell the same events or teaching, but from just slightly different perspectives. So that could be what's happening here in the Gospel of Luke, or Luke's account could just be an entirely different time when Jesus taught this same teaching. Kind of inclined toward that. Either way, the Lord's Prayer is recorded twice in the Bible. So that means we should pay attention to it. Now, for Luke's account, did you notice what prompts the Lord's prayer? Is one of Jesus's disciples, we're not told who, one of his disciples notices Jesus's example and asks Jesus to teach him to pray. I couldn't help but think, here's a model disciple, a model disciple, one who is observant of Jesus. Luke tells us on several occasions that Jesus went away on his own to pray. And here is one of those times. Now, when Jesus, Jesus was away, the disciples could have just played. Could have gotten caught up in other affairs. If it was today, it could have been like, oh, finally, this is a time when I could check my phone. Jesus has stopped bugging me. But instead, here is this disciple who keeps his eye on his master. Oh, well, friends, if we will learn to live, let alone learn to pray, we must observe our Lord. We must keep our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. It means our Bibles should not be dusty. They should be well-worn. But not only does this model disciple observe Jesus, this model disciple wants to imitate Jesus. This is the heart of every disciple of Christ. Every disciple of Christ says, I want to pattern my life after my Lord's. So it's a question for us. We who call ourselves followers of Jesus, do we follow him with regards to our prayer life? Because we read the uh, gospel of Luke and we see many times Jesus gets away on his own to pray. He makes time to pray privately and even makes time to pray publicly so I wonder, we who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, do we put off prayer or do we discipline ourselves to get alone and pray? I think if we, if we could weigh our prayer lives on a scale, we'd be afraid to step on it. You know, you get that yearly physical, you kind of dread that moment. The nurse tells you, all right, I'm going to take off my shoes and maybe that will help. <laughs> But it's not going to help that much. If we could weigh our lives, our prayer lives, on a scale, we would not like what the number we see, because we would see we have not kept ourselves lean with the discipline of private and public prayer. Instead, we have overindulged on distraction and busyness. There's hope for us, though. Model disciples don't leave themselves in self pity; they want to grow. This man is humble enough to acknowledge the truth about himself. It's like he says, I admire my Lord. I want to imitate him, but I know I am lacking. I see how other people are growing, like John's disciples. So I will ask my Lord to teach me. See, even this desire to learn requires a humble dependence. And how many times does the Bible say that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Friends, maybe you can't pray because you haven't asked for help. So yeah, prayer is hard. We are without example. We are without knowledge, but we are not without a teacher. So my friend, if you struggle to pray, have you gone to the Lord? Have you gone to his word? And have you asked, Lord, please teach me to pray? Many of us would say that prayer is hard because we don't know what to say. But here's teaching. You can know what to say. You have content and a pattern for prayer. So let's dive into that. And we will continue our theme of dependence. We depend on God to provide for us. But also, firstly, we depend on God for his name to be honored and his kingdom to be established. We depend on God for his name to be honored and his kingdom to be established. I want to submit to you that we're going to ask for these requests only when we realize who we're talking to when we pray. It reminded me of a story that happened, it was in the news recently. Uh, A man named Richard Griffin, he was a Royal Protection Officer on the Queen of England's security detail. So the Queen of England recently celebrated her 70th year on England's throne, amazing enough. So the queen, uh, Griffin tells this story about how the queen and him were one day hiking uh, on the grounds of Balmoral Castle in Scotland. This is the queen's holiday home. And as they were hiking, two hikers came toward them. And it was apparent very quickly that they did not recognize the queen. Uh, and they were Americans, of course. Uh, They went on to tell the queen and her security guard all the sights that they had seen in England, and then they made conversation. They asked the queen, oh, oh, where are you from? Uh, And where do you live? And she said, I live in London, but I have a holiday home on the other side of the hills. And they asked her, well, how long have you been coming here? She said, a little over 80 years. And they were amazed. They said, well, if you met the queen, she's come here this long. And she said, no, but Griffin here, he talks to her all the time. (laughs) And they said, really, what's she like? And Griffin kind of knowing the queen has a good sense of humor. He said, uh, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely (laughs) sense of humor. And these two hikers, these Americans, were so excited that they met Griffin, somebody who knows the queen, that they asked the queen to take a picture of them standing with Griffin. <laughs> and as they walked away, the queen said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when, Griffin, when they show those photographs to their friends in America, and hopefully somebody tells them who I am. Guys, have you considered that you don't pray well because you don't know who you're talking to? In prayer, we talk to our Father. This indicates a closeness, an intimacy, and a warmth. But when we say, your kingdom come, we indicate we're also talking to the King. The king of all the cosmos, the king of every molecule, the king of every creature, the king of every place, the king of every king, that king is your father. That stunning privilege should fix your focus and melt your heart, but it gets even better. It should do this more when you remember the infinite cost it took for God to adopt you into his family. Being a child of the king is not something we have by birth, but by adoption. Our adoption comes not through anything we have done, but through the work of Christ on the cross in our place. Galatians 4, 4 4-5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The king is your father. That's who you're talking to when you pray. J.I. Hacker wrote famously in his classic book, Knowing God, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If you realize who you're talking to in prayer, then you will pray God-centered prayers. If you remember who you're talking to, you will pray God-centered prayers. Notice the first outcomes Jesus teaches us to pray for. For God's name to be hallowed. For God's kingdom to come. The pronouns are very important there. Your name, not my own. Your kingdom, not mine. Anyone who treats prayer like a vending machine to get the stuff they want has forgotten the glorious king they're talking to. This request, hallowed be your name, is another way to say, let your name be honored as holy. And this request, my friend, it begins with you who pray it. You bear your Father's name. Pray that your life would honor it. But your Father, the King, is worthy of honor from more than people just than you. He is worthy of honor from all the people of the earth. When we realize who we're praying to, we realize our Father deserves nothing less than worldwide hallowing. Psalm 67, 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Your kingdom come is a cry for God to establish his rule on earth. But again, this request begins with you who are praying it. It's a request for God to establish his rule as king in your heart and life. It's asking God to throne the idols and the loves that have taken your proper place. My friend, this request extends beyond you. He is king, not just of you, but of all the earth. This is a prayer for God's kingdom to expand, even right now. For God to reign in the hearts of more people. For God to draw more people to himself through his son, by his spirit. And it's a prayer for God's kingdom to come in full. It it echoes the last prayer of the Bible. Come back, Lord Jesus so that he will establish justice and peace, so that he will right every wrong, so that he will wipe away every tear, so that he will bring an end to sin and bring us close to him. Let your kingdom come. But notice that we depend on our Father to bring about our God-centered prayers. God is the one who will honor his name. God is the one who will establish his kingdom. So even as we ask him this, we submit ourselves to him, we trust his timing. But then as the prayer continues, it's, we turn to the affairs of the day. So secondly, we depend on God for provision. Each day we depend on our Father to provide. And so far our prayer has echoed Jesus' priorities in Matthew 6, 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But as our prayer continues, it echoes the perspective of Matthew 6. 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we depend on God in prayer by asking for what we need today. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. And again, the pronouns are very important here. It's our, not mine. Jesus is subtly teaching us we should remember the needs of others, not just the needs of ourselves. Jesus is subtly teaching us we should pray this within a community, not in isolation. And this word, these words, daily bread, it would encompass everything our physical bodies require. God has always intended his people to live in daily dependence on him. And I want to prove that to you. I'm going to give you specific examples. We read about it earlier. There are many examples of the Bible, maybe no clearer one than the Israelites in the wilderness. So when the Israelites, God freed them from Egypt and they're wandering uh, to the promised land. How did God guide them? We read about it. It was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is how God told them where he wanted them to go. Now, could they predict the pillar's movements? Did they know how long the pillar would remain in one place? No. They couldn't know from day to day. Numbers 9.22, whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. They couldn't predict it. They just had to depend each day. For guidance, God intends his people to live in daily dependence on him. When the Israelites wandered between Egypt and the Promised Land, how did God feed them? With manna, bread from heaven. And were the Israelites allowed to store the manna? Were they allowed to pack it in Tupperware containers when they finally found the right lid to it and put it in the refrigerator? No. Exodus 16 4 says that God gave them a day's portion every day in order to test them. I assume it was in order so that they would depend on God every day, each day. God intends for his people to live in daily dependence on him. Now you might think, but Steve, I thought God wants us to work. If he's the one who gives us food, then why do we need to work? Well, yes, God sovereignly provides, but God sovereignly provides through means. God does not ordinarily provide through the means of raining food from heaven. That'd be cool, but God ordinarily provides through giving us the ability and the opportunity to work. 1 Timothy 5.8, that's why it says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God intends for us to live in daily dependence upon him. You might say, but Steve, isn't it wise to plan? I mean, I got this financial planner with me, and it should, should I just drop him and say, hey, I'm going to live day by day as God wants me to? Think of Joseph rationing food to prepare for famine. Well, yeah, it is wise to plan. But it is unwise to rest in our planning instead of our Father. Should be very humble when it comes to our plans. James 4, 14 to 15, you'll recognize these. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's really humbling. Friends, you control so much less than you think you do. And when you remember that, that will drive you to depend on the Lord for each day. God intends for us to live in daily dependence upon him. But maybe you say, but Steve, don't people, even Christians, sometimes go hungry? Don't they sometimes lack the things that they need? Yeah, that happened even to Jesus. If we depend on our Heavenly Father to provide, we trust that He is able to provide. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But we also trust that it might not be His will to provide, at least for a moment. Perhaps it's to draw us closer to Him. Perhaps it's to bring us home to Him. But it doesn't take away our need to depend on Him every single day. Friends, it really boils down to this. Is faith something that you've checked off? And left behind. Say, yeah, I I believed in Jesus a a long time ago and God has justified me. I'm kind of on to bigger and better things. That's not the Christian life. Galatians 2.20 says, the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Friends, will your faith be a one-time event for you or will it be a daily way of life for you? it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Because most of us, if you think about it, are surrounded by abundance. We don't feel the pressure of not knowing where the next meal is going to come from. For most of of us, this is just unnatural. We don't like acknowledging uncertainty. We don't like feeling that we can't prevent every outcome. We live in the future. We plan for kids and for our mortgage and for our retirement and for our college. A daily dependence on the Lord is just so unnatural. And it's not careless about the future, but it is meant to be freeing for the present. Jesus teaches us, guys, just pray God would give you what you need today. How freeing would that be if you really embraced that? So for the affairs of each day, we continue our prayer. We need more than daily bread. We need daily mercy. We need daily mercy. I think, again, of Jesus' words from Matthew 6, that life is more than food and clothing. Every day we depend on our Father for forgiveness. So we pray, forgive us our sins. And you can just pick apart this prayer a little bit and analyze it. It shows you, if you pray this, that you believe the truth about God and you believe the truth about yourself. When you pray, forgive us of our sins, you are stating theology because your prayer is informed by the truth that God has standards for right and wrong, that sin exists. When you pray this, you wouldn't ask for forgiveness If you didn't believe God is holy and unstained by sin, you wouldn't ask for forgiveness if you believe God doesn't care about the damage that sin causes you or other people. You wouldn't pray this if you didn't believe either that God is merciful. You wouldn't pray, forgive us our sins, if you didn't believe God provides the payment for the punishment of our sins. This is a theologically informed prayer. But not just theology, anthropology. When you pray, forgive us of our sins, you are confessing truth about yourself, who you are. You are confessing, I am accountable to God, and my sin is ultimately against him. You are confessing more than I'm imperfect, more than just I've made a few mistakes. You are confessing, I have sinned. I am guilty and need forgiveness. Friends, this is really good news for our world that is awash in guilt. I was helped by this, uh, by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung and his sermon from the Together for the Gospel Conference. You know, people have a nagging sense, especially here in, in our moment. People have a nagging sense that they aren't good enough and aren't doing enough. That's why their anxiety levels are higher than they've ever been, at least as they've been recorded. And because of this nagging sense, people try to compensate. So we hear different kinds of messages of pride, right? Things like, you're awesome, or you're enough. But at the same time, we we get messages from the world that tell us we are also responsible for causing and now solving every single one of the world's tragedies. So to reconcile this, we develop a plan where we prove ourselves by signaling our virtue to everybody else. We show that we are on the right side and that we are not part of the problem. And no matter how much we do this, our guilt doesn't go away because the world will always threaten to bring up our old sins. The world has a guilt problem, but it has no forgiveness solution. But this prayer tells us where to turn. It tells us that there is assurance that we can be forgiven. And it comes to us not by looking at ourselves, but by looking away from ourselves. And the one who taught us to pray this prayer, he's the one who's going to secure full and final forgiveness for everybody who trusts in him. And on the cross, Jesus satisfied the punishment for our sin so that God can forgive us. The world is loaded with guilt but has no forgiveness. The gospel says, the guilt's even worse than you think. But there is forgiveness. May your heart swell up for the first time that through Christ, God really, truly forgives sin. But yet, what for the person who has already received Christ and has been forgiven of her sins? Why does she still need this prayer? Well, it's not to experience her salvation, but it is to enjoy it. If God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, as 1 John says, then we will be distant from God if we walk in the dark. So we gotta ask ourselves again, are we gonna treat our faith as something we check off and leave behind? Or will we live by faith? Let me ask you in another way, in align with this request, forgive us our sins. I wonder, my friend, what would it do for your walk with the Lord? If you meaningfully confessed your sins every single day, what would that do for your walk with the Lord? Would it not keep you close to Him? But in our prayer, there's a second half to our dependence on God for forgiveness. It says, "Forgive us of our sins, for we forgive everyone indebted to us." This reminds us of a couple of things. It reminds us that all of our sin causes damage that requires payment to remedy. It creates a debt. It reminds us also that the way we show appreciation to God for forgiving our sins, the way we show our appreciation to Jesus for paying our debt, the way we show that appreciation is by being forgiven or being forgiving ourselves. I mean, the logic works like this. If, if God, who is entirely sinless and innocent, does not withhold forgiveness, who are you to withhold forgiveness Sinful and guilty and forgiven. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in your appreciation for God forgiving you, remember how hard it is to forgive other people. If you want to grow in appreciation for God's forgiveness of you, remember how hard it is to forgive other people. I know this is a layered topic, it's more than we have time for, but if you want a barometer for your relationship with God, check how much bitterness and hatred you have in your heart toward other people. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive others who are indebted to us. Maybe you pray that those requests like this. God, I confess my sins, and you get specific. And God, I ask you to forgive me based on the finished work of Christ. And please use the forgiveness you've shown to me to shape my heart so that I forgive other people. We depend on God for forgiveness. We depend on God, lastly, for protection. In one episode of the sitcom, uh, The Office, Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute are on their way to a sales call and driving together. And in this episode, it was around 15 years ago, so it was back when everybody had those little GPS machines in their car that you would get from Best Buy. Do you remember those things? Um, All right, so I hear somebody say, you still have one, that's great. Um, So... Michael and Dwight, they come to an intersection, and the GPS says, turn right. And Dwight, who's in the passenger seat, tells Michael, no, it means to bear right, not turn right. And Michael says, no, we need to go right. And Dwight says, no, there's a lake right there. We don't need to turn right. And Michael says, well, maybe it's a shortcut. And and so he starts to turn, and Dwight tells him, no, what are you doing? And as they're approaching the lake, Michael just screams out, the machine knows, Dwight. And they crash into a lake. (laughs) The final part of the prayer Jesus teaches us is lead us not into temptation. I mean, this prayer acknowledges that God is the one who determines our path, that there are twists and turns on our journey to our destination, twists and turns that we don't foresee, but God does. Now, is this prayer saying that God can sometimes be like a wonky GPS? And sometimes he leads us to the wrong place. Well, we have to interpret scripture with scripture. And when we do that, we remember God is never the author of sin. Any desire to do wrong does not come from God. It comes from us. James 1, 13 to 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we say God is never the author of sin. At the same time, God does lead us to situations that might test us. Remember Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. How did it begin? Matthew 4, verse 1. very interesting. Jesus was led up to, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The devil. God led Jesus to a crisis, but Jesus did not get sucked into sin. Jesus triumphed by the word of God, and God can give us this same grace as He may lead us into a crisis, but He can also deliver us from evil. God may lead us to a crisis, but He can also provide us the way of escape that we might be able to escape and endure temptation. Jesus here and throughout this prayer wants to teach us to pray in a way that humbly admits our need. We look out at each day, we need provision. We look out at each day, we need forgiveness. We look out at each day, we need protection. Protection from the danger to repeat the same sin we've just asked for forgiveness about. Protection from from the danger to tarnish the name we just asked that God would honor. In prayer, we admit our need and we depend on no one and nothing else besides God to meet our need. And there are a lot of people who would say, I've probably said it before, that uh, God doesn't give you what you can't handle. I think we can put a, make it a little more precise. This prayer admits, God, there's going to be a ton of stuff I can't handle. <laughs> And can't do, which is why I'm praying and need your help. So, friends, do you pray? Do you pray? If you don't, if you don't really know how, you can learn. But if you're going to learn, you're going to need more than just content. Content. You're going to need a new heart, a heart that's dependent, not independent. One Vietnam War veteran shared how the atrocities that he witnessed made him an atheist. He said this, I was an atheist at least until the shooting started again. So many of us don't know how to pray because we treat prayer like that. We wait until the shooting starts to depend on the Lord. All other times, we depend on ourselves. My friend, what if you made prayerful dependence your daily way of life? To acknowledge your weakness, to acknowledge your limits, to acknowledge your sinfulness, to acknowledge your desperate need. And when you do that, there is only one place to turn your Father. Is the king? As Jesus continues his teaching on prayer in verses 5 to 13, he encourages us. We can trust our father. He is dependable. He is generous. He's not stingy. He's good. He's not uncaring. He's not unwise. Oh, brothers and sisters, you can pray. And you can learn how. Follow the pattern of the son. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different. And everybody just got nervous. I'm going to lead us in prayer in response. But it's, it's kind of like a, um, it, it, having a message on prayer and then not praying together uh, would feel like just talking about exercise and not actually exercising. So after I'm done praying, we're going to split up into groups of maybe five to six. It could be a little bit more. I'm going to split up to groups and we are going to pray together. You can let each heading of the Lord's Prayer be your guide. So in your group, you can assign one heading to somebody in the prayer that who's going to take Father, hallowed be your name. That's going to be your heading. And you pray in light of it. Maybe you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you pray, yes, Father, it is our great desire that your name would be feared and revered for who you are. Our God and our creator, the Holy One who in mercy gave your only begotten Son to save us from your wrath for our sin. Let each heading of the prayer be your guide. Assign maybe one or two lines of the Lord's Prayer to each person until you're done. Groups of five to six, if you're really shy and don't want to pray, let the extroverted person in your group be your lead. Okay, that is all right. But we don't want to just talk about praying. We actually want to pray. So let me lead us in the most button to our groups. All right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Through the mighty name of Jesus we pray, amen.